Good morning. So good to see all of you. We've had a, a wonderful day so far. Uh, between services, Philip Christensen uh, was baptized and just delighted about that. Uh, whether you're here in person or online, wherever you're watching, uh, however you're participating, we hope, especially if you're online, that you'll sing along with us and genuinely worship the Lord. And I want to ask for your help in the coming days. I've given up on, on predictions on when exactly the pandemic will be over. Uh, a little over a year ago when, when we suddenly had to lock down, I think I told the staff we'll be back in three weeks. So that'll tell you how smart I am. But it does appear that we are approaching, that we're past a tipping point and we're on our way back to some kind of normal. But uh, life and church and schools and families, we will be changed, if not forever, at least for a very long time. So we will need your help finding out exactly where we are. In the coming weeks, you're going to receive a survey from me. Uh, we're working hard to assess who's here and how you're doing. As we continue to open up ministries and do more and more things, we want to know exactly where you are. Even if you're online, we have people, I'm told, based on my emails that are watching from Ireland, others are in Minnesota, we've had people join us from Georgia, uh, all over the place, people are watching, and we want, wherever you are, if you're uh, part of this ministry, and particularly if you're here in our hometown, we don't want to lose touch with you. Uh, we don't want to assume too much. We want to do things well to love the Lord and to love you. So I know you get too much email, and I know surveys are tedious, but this one will be quick. If you'll just be patient with us and indulge us and fill out that survey when it comes to your inbox, we, that will help us rally and relaunch. If you're not receiving my weekly email, please subscribe today. That's how you're going uh, to receive it. Right now, we have an amazing passage of Scripture in front of us. It's far removed from our time. We're going to step back 2,000 years in time, and it may not be immediately apparent to you what any of this has to do with you. But I'm in this story. My needs, my frailty is in this story, and so is yours. Let's pray to the Lord and ask Him to help us understand it. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your great love for us. We've been singing, Lord, the good news, using other words, other word pictures. We've sung that You are our living hope. God, help us live this story. Help us to see ourselves at the table. Help us to hear your teaching, your warning for ourselves. You were dealing with Peter. You were dealing with your first disciples. But you want to deal with us as well because you are alive. You're still forming disciples. You're still welcoming people into the family of God. And our best move and our only hope would be to truly hear you and obey you and follow you. So I pray that this sermon, the way I preach it, the way we listen to it together, the way, Lord, I obey what your word tells me, that that would make the difference. I pray in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. amen. Somebody has politely asked me not to stand so close to the edge of the stage. They're afraid I'll fall over. They're not wrong. One Sunday, I did fall over, remember? If you weren't here, you missed a lot of fun. I was so happy to see you in the early days of being outside. I just started walking towards you and never stopped. Um, I was 
landed enough, landed well enough on my feet. Somebody asked me later if it was intentional. Folks, very few things that happen when I'm involved are intentional, okay? It's a high wire act up here all the time. And some of you, in your kindness, have uh, continually reminded me that I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and are quick to point out uh, when playoff time comes around that either my team is not in the playoffs again or, as is the custom, if we do make it, we always make an early exit. It's been a long time since anybody has had to anything to rejoice in as a Dallas Cowboys fan. You really shouldn't. You should make me an object of your compassion, not your contempt. I came by it honest. My, dad was, my dad's from Fort Worth. I was born in Amarillo. I was born into it. I have no choice but to root for that apparently cursed team. It's just the way I was raised. And as a Dallas Cowboy fan, you learn to find comfort wherever you can in whatever's happening with that year's team. Very few of you have the misfortune of being Dallas Cowboys fans, so the name Eugene Lockhart will be unknown to almost all of you. But if you're a dedicated, hardcore, old-school football fan, you may remember his name. He was the linebacker for the Cowboys when they were somehow even worse than they are now. His name was Eugene Lockhart. He grew up, if I remember correctly, playing in Texas, and he was one of the few good players on, a, on some really terrible teams. In fact, he was so good that they gave him a nickname. They called Eugene Lockhart, Eugene the Hit Machine Lockhart. And if you're in the world's best league of professional football violence and your peers decide to call you the hit machine, you truly are something special. He made most of the tackles because nobody else on the team wanted to make any, apparently. And I kind of found refuge in his story. I admired him because he was always fighting the offense, apparently, by himself. And I read that when he was in high school, Obviously, someone who's going to star in the NFL is going to be absolutely devastating in high school when he's playing against normal people. And on one game, Eugene worked his way through the other team's roster and knocked out or injured every single one of their running backs in a single game. That meant that when the coach, in desperation, looked to the end of his bench for what I believe was the fifth string running back, he found an empty spot where Bobby should have been. A uh, search committee was, uh, was quickly formed. They went looking for him. They found the boy crying in the locker room saying, Coach, don't send me out there. Eugene is going to kill me. That's a little bit understandable because he had seen the four players who were better than he was be carted off on stretchers in various states of, of, di of unconsciousness. What hope did he have for himself? And in a much more serious way, actually in a deadly serious way, that's the, that's the energy in the story of what happened next at the Lord's Supper. You may remember if you were here last week, the Lord Jesus recommissioned, rededicated the Jewish Passover and turned it into the Last Supper. He made a new covenant, he explained to his disciples, through his body given for them, through his blood spilled for them. Every element, every part of the supper, he explained, pointed back to him, the Lamb of God, who John said way back in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus would take away the sin of the world. 
through word pictures, through fulfilled prophecies, through literally serving them the food of the Passover supper, Jesus explained to them that he was now going to leave the table and die. Do you remember how they responded from last week's reading, last week's sermon? Jesus announced his death. What did they do? They argued among themselves about who was greater among them. It's one of the most callous and surprising things you could ever find in life and certainly one of the most callous stories in Scripture. Jesus is announcing his death and they are turning not to him but to each other saying, if he's going to die, if he's going to inaugurate the kingdom, I wonder how that works out for us. I wonder who's been more faithful. I wonder who's been stronger among us. And the strongest man at that table, at least the most self-professed strongest man among them, is Peter. Peter is the first to speak. He is the first to lead. He is the only one, you may remember, who offered to get out of the boat and walk on the water toward his Lord. I identify deeply with Peter because I often lead with my mouth instead of my intelligence. I'm quick to promise, I'm quick to commit and to overcommit. I don't know myself nearly as well as I think I do. And now, as you follow Peter's story with me in Luke 22, you're going to see the strongest among them counseled and humbled. Look with me in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This is immediately after the argument in Luke's telling. Peter was not actually his name. It was a nickname. It meant rock. It reflected, it was an honorific nickname that reflected both what Jesus and apparently his fellow disciples saw in Peter. They saw strength in him. They saw this man who was quick to confess Christ and also quick to tell Jesus what to do. They saw strength in him. It was to him that Jesus announced one time that the Father had revealed a special knowledge of Jesus to him. And on the confession that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus was going to build his church. Peter is a big deal. He is an important man among them, which is what makes it so surprising when Peter turns to Je- when Jesus turns to Peter and calls him not by his nickname, but by his name. Because Peter isn't nearly as strong as the disciples think. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You're not at that table, but try to imagine yourself there. If this, these words would have been spoken to you, how would you have responded? You're on the saddest night that you've ever had with the Lord Jesus. He has announced through symbols, through fulfilled scripture, through the serving of food, that he is now going to be passed, killed as a Passover lamb himself, that he's going to cover the sins of the men at the table, the sins of the nation of Israel who are going to put him on the cross. Your response to this point has been not to acknowledge, not to humble yourself, not to cry over what you're being told, not to be in amazement that he is so willing to die for you, but to actually argue among yourselves too Figure out who, it, who is going to be blessed and who is going to be benefited when the Lord returns. He corrects you. 
He tells you that the key to greatness in the kingdom is not lording it over others, but serving them. That the ones who are truly great will deliberately take positions of the least importance that they may serve people who are not nearly as noteworthy and not nearly as important than they are. You receive that correction and then you're told Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It's a first century word picture. Then and now, to get the good out of wheat, you have to cut it down, and then you have to thrash it. We do it with giant machines now. They did it with tools and violence and manpower back then. But what Peter is being told is the prince of darkness, my chief enemy, the one who animates so much of the evil that you've seen, The one in charge of the demons you've cast out, Simon, he's asked for you by name. He wants to have you to wreck you. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Number one Bible reading tip at cross point, slow down. Jesus is telling Peter as much as this. You've been asked for by name, and he's going to have you. He's going to wreck you. Here's your only comfort. As this is coming towards you, I have prayed for you. And when you recover, verse 32, when you have turned again. In other words, Peter, when you get up from the valley of your failure, when you are converted, when you make the U-turn from where he's going to take you and where your weakness is going to drop you, strengthen the men around the table. Now imagine yourself in that situation. What would you now say to Jesus? Would you say, please spare me? Would you say, thank you for praying for me? Would you say, I'm frightened? Would you say, teach me so that I may stand in that moment so that my faith may not fail? I don't know what you would say. I'm somewhat stunned by what Simon actually did say. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What Peter told Jesus is, I hear what you're telling me. I can handle it. You're saying that I'm going to be tested. You're saying I'm going to be dragged in a place of temptation and failure. You're telling me that you've actually prayed for me so that I will continue to trust and then come back from that painful lesson to strengthen those who will be perhaps even more frightened than I was. I'm telling you, I don't care what they do. I don't care what you just said. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, how many times? Three times that you know. Notice the drag strip always comes out during the second service. It is so mellow during the first service. All the guys with the cool whips come out at 1030. Verse 35. He said to them, now Jesus, his chief disciple, has misunderstood him. His chief disciple has not only misunderstood Jesus, he's essentially denied that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus has nothing to teach Simon on this night. 
He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Do you remember that story? When Jesus first went out and when he first sent them out, he expressly forbid them to take any money or food for the journey. How did it work out for them? He provided everything they needed. But now he says, you're about to start living in a new day, a more difficult day. Verse 36, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, take everything you've got. Be ready to protect yourself. Be ready for everything. Verse 37, here's why. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. It's hard to see it if you don't slow down, but I want you to understand that Jesus is reaching back into the Hebrew Scriptures, into the book of Isaiah, a prophecy written 700 years earlier that the servant of God, the servant who God would send, would be killed among criminals. And Jesus is telling them, this is that night. The night when all the Sabbaths where they unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read from his prophecies and his servant songs, which you can read in places like chapter 42, and you can read especially in Isaiah 53, which gives a vivid portrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus. That, gentlemen, is what is happening now. What is written to be about me has its fulfillment. Be ready. Hard days are coming. I won't be with you much longer. I once sent you out with nothing. Now it's time to get ready with everything you own and something you may not even own because hard days are coming. The day of my death is at hand. How again do you expect them to respond? Look what they say. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. It's an odd statement. So odd that the translators in the Bible don't know exactly what to make of this. See, the sword they're discussing is something that was commonly carried by men in the first century. It was essentially not a sword you, like you might see in a pirate movie. It was essentially a long knife that was often carried as a tool and also as a means of self-defense. Jesus is telling them, the days of my presence physically with you are at an end. Things have changed. You're going to need every resource physically you can put your hands on. If you don't have a sword, it's a good time to get one. Some people have said that this is a justification for Christian self-defense. I think there's certainly something to that, but you can make that case much better from other parts of Scripture. What Jesus is telling them here is to be ready because danger is at hand. And they clumsily say, hey, among the 12 of us, we've got two of these knives. Some translators try to get to the idea of what they believe Jesus is saying to make him say enough of that talk. Don't talk about that anymore. In either case, the disciples do not understand. They are not equipped. They are not listening to Jesus because if you read the story of his arrest in detail, Roman soldiers and the temple guard are going to come. 
a detachment of Roman soldiers is going to be there to prevent a possible riot. The temple guard is going to be there too callously, criminally arrest Jesus for supposed blasphemy and take him off to an illegal kangaroo court of a trial in which he will be unjustly accused by men who can't even agree on their accusations before being wickedly put to death. And these disciples who were just arguing about how the death of Jesus is going to benefit them by the way they compare themselves with one another seem to think that their two measly little knives are going to do something to make them ready for the moment. No wonder Jesus said that's enough. And then we come into one of the holiest and hardest to understand, hardest to fathom rather. The meaning is clear. But to really understand what happened next, it'll take you a lifetime. You can dwell on this passage and marvel at it for the rest of your life. Look, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Again, slow down when you're reading. Jesus is going to the Mount of Olives, to a little section of it called, to this day, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've been to Israel with us, and you can find this easily in any Bible atlas, a quick Google search will show you the very scene I'm describing. You would understand that the Garden of Gethsemane is within easy eyeshot of the place where Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. He's not going to hide. He's going there to wait. He's not hiding He's actually going there as was his custom where he has prayed with them, where he has taught them so many times before. Judas himself is going to know exactly where to find him. Jesus is determined to go to the cross, but it came at a terrible price. Verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. In other words, just a few yards away. And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. See if you can see your Savior pleading with the Father. Knowing the Son of God, having become a man, what horrors awaited him, not only physically but spiritually, as he, the only innocent and righteous human being to ever walk the earth, is going to stand in the place of sinners and receive their judgment. The disciples had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. This lesson which they could not witness was left on the pages of Scripture to give us our final and best lesson in prayer. The chief object of prayer is not to bend God to your will, but to bend yourself to the will of God. Jesus is saying to the Father, if there is any other way through this, if I don't have to drink the depths of the cup of this judgment, if there is any other way to do what we have decided, I would like to do that now, but not my will, but yours be done. And this was so agonizing. I don't know if you noticed this detail. Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jesus is removed from his disciples. His father hears him in prayer. And God the Son 
God the Father and God the Spirit, one in will and purpose, are actually going to go to the cross. Jesus the Son is going to the cross, sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit. But this moment was so devastating that he needed physical strengthening. Luke, a doctor, remember, describes the agony of Jesus in prayer as sweat falling from his brow like great drops of blood. We can't be certain from what the text is telling us, but it seems like a reasonable conjecture that Jesus is suffering a very rare medical condition occasioned by stress where blood vessels break, and when the sufferer sweats, his sweat is actually tinged with blood. It's a picture of total agony. Now, what did Jesus tell the disciples to do? He's a little bit removed from them. It may be that we and the disciples were in a place like this right here. Jesus is right over there at that building praying just a short distance away. He told them to pray. Why? Look at your Bible. Why did Jesus tell them to pray? That they will not fall into temptation. Because Satan is on the loose. Wicked men are on their way. A traitor is coming with the kiss to betray the Son of God. All he has asked them to do is to do what? Pray. To what end? So that they won't fall into temptation. What are they doing instead? Verse 45. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. The next two words are important. He found them sleeping for sorrow. Have you ever been so depressed that you couldn't think or speak or act? You simply fell asleep? I've been there. Not often, thank God, but I've had valleys deep enough that the only refuge that came to me was sleep. The disciples, I believe, are already succumbing to temptation because they're not obeying their Lord. Grief has overcome them. Jesus is struggling. The God-man is struggling beside them, obeying humanly his Father, getting ready to present himself, his whole person, as a righteous sacrifice for sin. And they're sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But they're not going to do any better. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Every detail matters. Even now, Jesus is acknowledging that he is a human being who can be tortured, who can be betrayed, who can die on a cross, but he's not merely a man. He's the Son of Man promised by Daniel coming in the clouds. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember this band? How many swords do they have? Two. Now they're asking, is it time to use them? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple? You did not lay hands on me. Watch this. Don't miss it. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. What are the disciples doing now? They are completely insufficient to the moment. 
They've misunderstood Jesus at every turn. After all he had showed them, after all he had explained to them, one of them makes a clumsy attempt, worthy of a fisherman, not a warrior, to defend his Lord. He has to be rebuked publicly, a final miracle of healing, not, on, not for the sake of Jesus, but for the sake of a man who was there helping those who came to arrest him is affected. And Jesus says, all of this is happening because this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following every detail matters. How is Peter following? At a distance. Wasn't this Simon the one who said, I'll go to prison with you? I'll face a trial with you. I'll die with you and I'll die for you if necessary. Where is Peter now? He's at a distance. He's peering through the crowd, hoping to see Jesus. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now listen, see this. And the Lord looked, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter's been following closely enough so when this section of the mockery of a trial is over, Jesus is back in that courtyard. Peter, not knowing himself, not knowing his heart, is actually at a distance. He is not with his Lord, and his heart and his words reveal he is not even at this point for his Lord. He's in the courtyard denying that he has ever met him, that he has any idea of him and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he had said to him before the rooster crows today you will deny me three times and P Simon went out and wept bitterly every word in the Bible matters God could have told us much more about the life of his son He only told us a few teachings and a few of the events of the life of the Son of God. Why is this here? The whole story is headed to the cross. The redemption of humankind is at hand as promised a thousand years earlier in the songs of David and 700 and 500 years in the words of the Israelite prophets. Why does Luke take us aside and let us see these disciples? Why this sidebar? Why not hurry to the real outcome of the story and what matters most, which is Jesus dying on the cross? The reason is because Luke, a disciple, wants to leave something under the inspiration of God for the rest of us for all time to follow Jesus faithfully while we wait for his return. And the lesson of this sad story is this, relying on our ability instead of Jesus will always end in failure. 
Take it to the bank every time you rely on yourself instead of the strength and the person of Jesus Christ. The outcome can only be bitter tears. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. It doesn't matter what you say about him. Your experience and your past success and failures do not matter. At the exact moment you depart from your dependence on him, only failure awaits you. And it's the hardest thing for Christians to learn. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, and nobody believes him. The Garner version of that verse is, without Jesus, I can at least get started, and I will call him for help when we reach the things that I cannot do. And that's mockery and foolishness and akin to blasphemy. You saw the strongest of the disciples fail, embarrass himself, blaspheme his Lord, fail the Lord, and then catch the piercing look across the courtyard as he remembers that Jesus had always and only told him the truth. You've seen these disciples embarrass themselves through misunderstanding, through half-hearted violence, through not knowing what the Lord was and what he was about to tell us repeatedly through the whole story Overconfidence, relying on our own ability instead of Jesus, will always end in failure. Let me show you how they failed. First, Peter was overconfident. He said, essentially, it does not matter what others do. I will be with you. Jesus told them to prepare their mind and prepare everything in their lives for harder days to come. And they said, well, we have two swords here. Surely that'll be enough. At the moment when the hour of darkness was descending, they were unable to obey the Lord in the simplest of instructions. Temptation is all around us. The chief tempter is coming. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. They chose sleep instead. They opposed what Jesus was doing with half-hearted efforts to defend him. And at the end, Peter was acting like he didn't even know the Lord. Those are their errors. Now let's step out of the dust and the blood and the failure of the first century and step here into our time in this parking lot in 2021 and reflect on our own discipleship. Because the things in Scripture are written to us as lessons and warnings. Can I just ask you very directly, what is it that you do when you don't rely on Jesus? How does that show up in your life? Or do you, am I blessed and privileged today to preach to people who always and only rely on the strength of Christ and never on their own? Is that the scenario this morning? Not for me. I'll tell you just one of the ways, one of the least embarrassing ways that my self-reliance shows up I'll work with what God has given me and plead to God for his help and for his blessing to do things that I know in my weakness I can never do on, on my own. I will ask him to open doors that are closed and to give blessings that are outside of my hands. And at the very moment he does it, if I'm not very careful, I'll step back and admire what I think is my work. And rather than be as humble in gratitude that he has finally broken through and done what I so desperately asked, I'll have a moment of celebration and perhaps even self-congratulation, forgetting that I need him in success just as much as I do in weakness and failure. 
Everybody runs to something when they decide to stop relying on Jesus. I'm asking you, before we're done, to carefully consider what your refuge might be. Some run to anger. Some run to blame shifting. Some run to entertainment. They numb themselves. Some fall into the kind of sorrowful sleep that overtook the disciples. Others comfort themselves with food or entertainment or friendship or worldly achievement. In every one of those cases, what the Lord would have you know is that He wants you to come to an end of yourself and entrust yourself to His ability, to His strength, to His faithfulness. Listen to Him speaking to Peter. Satan has asked for you. By name, Simon, He wants you. He wants to wreck you. He wants to leave you like crushed wheat on the ground. But look at the goodness and the strength and the compassion of Jesus. But I have prayed for you. Christian, he prays for you. He knows your trials. He knows your weakness, his hope and his teaching. And that's why this lesson is in the scriptures is that you will agree with him that you will see and say what he does and you will acknowledge yourself as permanently and forever weak apart from him, but in him perfectly able, perfectly capable, infinitely strong because you are in him and he is in you to do everything that he has called you to do. And if we don't do this, we'll see ourselves reflected in the story of Peter. We'll end up acting like we don't know him at all. This has been 2,000 years ago. Jesus warned the disciples that a whole new day was going to be inaugurated for them and from that point forward for Christians generally. We in the United States have been rarely and uniquely historically blessed. From this nation's founding, being a Christian generally has been a position of blessing and strength and protection and privilege in those days may soon be ending. If we don't rely on the strength of Jesus in the days to come, we may find ourselves identifying with Peter in that courtyard, denying through our actions and denying with our silence that we ever knew the Lord at all. And this is the time when the people around you, with all the way that the world has been humbled, that the way our nation has been crushed by all the terrible effects of this pandemic, this is when your friends and your family, your loved ones, the people at your work, the people at your schools, most need you to courageously stand with Christ and for Christ and claim him. And tell them that you have a hope in you that has nothing to do with the achievements of this world and the safety and the blessing the world can offer. That as you've been singing, our living hope is Christ himself. Every week as I've been telling you, as I do what I can with the help of God to remind you of the Savior, hundreds and thousands of people drive by this church. And I don't know where they're headed. They don't owe me any answers. But I guess, if I would guess, if we are able to survey them, they are driving past dozens of churches every day in their lives, not knowing and not caring what is being said of Jesus there because they have excluded him altogether from their lives. Those people 
Some of them callous, some of them resistant, many of them merely indifferent. They need to hear from you in your circle of friendship and your circle of influence that Jesus is the Savior that died for sin and rose from the grave. In two weeks on Easter Sunday, with God's help and in answer to your prayers, which I hope to have, I'll do my best to present this Savior crucified and risen again that can save anybody you bring to hear about him. But this is a time for boldness. This is not a time for drawing back. This is not a time for figuring it out. This is a time to rely on Christ because relying on our ability instead of Jesus will always, always end in bitter tears. Let's pray together, shall we? Can I just ask first and most importantly, if there's anyone here who isn't entirely sure that Jesus is your Savior, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in person, if you're not 100% sure that Jesus has saved you, that Jesus has forgiven your sin. You hope so, you think so, you used to think so. I don't know. If you're not entirely certain, can I just invite you to do what Peter would not and humble yourself and cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you? Would you please tell the Lord that you have need of him? That you want his salvation? Tell him that you're sorry for your sin and you're willing now humbly to put him in charge. Save you. You'll take him as boss. Save you from sin. Save you from judgment and lead you through this life as he wants to go. If that's your need, please do so right now. If you're online, send us a text. If you're doing that in person, please do so. And let us know in the card that's in your bulletin or by praying with one of us, a pastor or a prayer team member at the end of the service. Let us know that you've stepped in faith toward Christ this morning. And Christian, I told you how my self-reliance shows up. How about you? You see now continual fighting to save yourself, defend yourself, figure it out, tell Jesus which way to go. If you've identified that in yourself, why don't you tell him about it? Just lay it out. Confess it to him. And ask him to give you this day and in the week to come, the week he's about to give you, a steady, humble reliance, not on you, not on yourself, but on him. Lord, this pandemic offers a, a tremendous, unavoidable and painful lesson that we cannot, but you can. We can't save ourselves. We can't even deal, Lord, with a little virus. We can't deal with authorities. We can't deal with our families. We can't deal with friendships. We struggle with our jobs. Everything's hard for us, Lord, because we are weak and frail and sinful. But you are strong. You are sufficient. So make this, Lord, a band of dependent disciples. Forgive us, Lord, for ever instructing you, correcting you, not listening to you when you were teaching us. Thank you for praying for us. Help us, Lord, stand very apart from the disciples in their moment of failure and help us instead rely on you entirely. And for whoever, Lord, today may be 
taking this moment of prayer to take you as Savior. Thank you for them. Bless them. Encourage them. Let the light and the encouragement of the gospel shine in them very, very strongly. And may they follow you faithfully from this day forward. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. Folks, after every service, under that canopy where it says kids check in, there's people specially trained who will be glad to listen to you in confidence and pray with you. One of the questions I have, and frankly one of the burdens is, we have so many people willing to pray, and so few people actually approach them sometimes to ask for their prayers. We're trying to grow in prayer. We're trying to grow in dependence on God. Every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. in the worship center, a small group of us are gathering to pray. There's another prayer meeting on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. You're welcome to join us. Some one young man who just became part of our church, he lives way down south, so he comes to the second service, but he joins us online for the prayer meeting at 8 o'clock. You're welcome to do that. Our prayer shows our dependence on the Lord. We're so fortunate we have a Lord that prays for us. So let's pray to him. If you need prayer, if you've made a decision, if you have a question, if you have a doubt, if you're troubled, that is the best and first place to go, right over there, or you're always welcome to talk to me. God bless you. Father, dismiss us in your grace. Grow our dependence on your son, Jesus Christ. And make us, God, into the disciples you desire. I pray in Jesus' name. We all say, amen. amen. God bless you. Love you.